Dons fans, Jonathan Walsh here, and welcome once again to another episode of Don the Stat. It's three down, 20 to go. The Dons are two and one, having fallen three goals short of the Saints. The Giants await on Easter Sunday as we endeavour to make it three wins from the first four. To chat through it all, I'm joined by my co-host, Ian Hume. Hume, how's things, mate? I'm good. I'm just resisting the temptation to make a resurrection joke, considering we're playing on Easter Sunday. Uh, but things are looking great here. Looking forward to spending time with the family over Easter. How about yourself? Yeah, a four-day break's come at a very welcome time, mate. So looking forward to watching some footy. Uh, you know, one benefit of Good Friday footy, even though they're, they're two teams I don't particularly like. Uh, well, there's no other team I particularly like, let's be honest. But uh, yeah, at least we've got something to watch tomorrow, right? So yeah, looking forward to watching some footy, catching up with family and friends and uh, putting the feet up a little bit, mate. And most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly. Well, yeah, most importantly, getting to the footy on Sunday and watching the dance. Yeah, unfortunately, I've got a family commitment, so I'll be watching from the TV. Uh, But look, before we get into tonight's show, I just want to give a shout out to Pat Dunn for a great review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, We really love to see them when they pop up. So if you are enjoying the show and you're willing to write one, they're much appreciated by us. Also want to thank the people who have unprompted mentioned the show on Twitter in the past week. Uh, Particularly one that stood out to me was from Patrick Ryan, just he 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 took the time to uh, mention how much he was enjoying the show and really highlighted it to other people. So really thanks to him. Uh, it's really been great to see people take a keen interest in the show and be wanting to hear our opinions on how things are going. We seem to get tagged on a lot of the hot takes from the media for a bit of our view, but I think that's also a good thing because we can provide some context for some of the more outlandish things that are being said. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the feedback really does drive us and keep us going as to all the, you know, the great questions that we get and and the like. It really helps to shape what we talk about. So, yeah, thanks, everyone. Keep it up. And, yeah, we really do value support. So, thanks very much. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. So, obviously, we've come crashing back to earth after a successful first two games with disappointing loss to St Kilda. Let's go back over our key focuses from the match preview and think about what went wrong there. So, the first focus was to keep our structure behind the ball. And from what I could tell based on how scoring went, our structure held up really well from set play. So what I would consider to be a set play are stoppages, center bounces and kickouts where teams have time to set up. From those three origins, we only conceded six scores. Uh, We scored 10 from those moments. So in terms of that, the structure held up in those set plays. However, the big difference in the game was that we conceded 16 scores from turnover. So we had uh, eight came from our own defensive half turnover. So we turned it over towards the Saints half of the ground. Uh, And as you can imagine, that's really difficult to structure up against when you have little time. Eight came from our forward half, which you would hope that would allow for more time to regain the structures there to, to cut that off. So work in progress there. And I imagine it's something that they've focused on a lot during the week. Yeah, I think you're right, mate. we had a couple of defenders that lower their colours, let's be honest. Laverde hasn't quite hit his straps in 2023. And Mason Redmond, you know, he had a pretty forgettable game as individuals. But I think as a as a team structure, Zerk Thatcher not being there and no key defender to bring in sort of meant rather than it just being one player out, one player in, which is the ideal situation, it meant one player out, someone else comes in, but everything had to shift away, shift around a little bit. So, you know, Laverde had to play that deep key back and you know so it, it was a different uh a different setup i guess to to what we've had albeit the same structure uh as a rule yeah i think it held up 
pretty right, uh, pretty well throughout the night. You, you know, you you are right. It's difficult to defend turnovers coming, you know, that are coming out of your own defensive half. So seven of St Kilda's fourteen goals came from turnovers in our defensive half of the ground, and three of those were turnovers in our back fifty. So I think we just made it really, really hard for ourselves. Uh, St Kilda scored just the two goals from defensive fifty transition, i.e. Coast to coast. So, you know, that combined with what you mentioned with our work around, you know, restricting scores from stoppage and the like and, and kick-ins, I think, you know, is a pretty strong indicator that our defence held up against a team that, you know, is in really good form. Uh, you know, we, we just, you know, had those really glaring turnovers, didn't we, in, in really bad parts of the ground and, and weren't able to quite execute and, and that hurt us in the end. Yeah. And then the next focus was to keep the ground big. You identified that St Kilda is a team that likes to make the ground small. And so we would want the opposite as we've seen the first couple of weeks where we've been really keen to take space. And by making the ground big, we have space to take. So that would involve don't rolling up our half forwards and don't allowing the loose defender. So if you think about the way the game played out, Essendon generated far more ball from clearance, so 43 to 29. And that was 28 to 16 at stoppage, which given what we've spoken about over the past years is actually a really pleasing stat. It's an area that Essendon haven't traditionally done well in. But the problem with that is that when you are attacking from those positions, the team opposition is set up defensively. They've had the time to get their structures in place. So for us, with a lack of threatening tall forwards uh, and some wayward entries, it meant players like Wilkie could cut off a lot of thrusts. So Wilkie had seven intercept marks out of 11 intercept possessions, and five of those came in the first quarter. So overall, St Kilda had 19 intercept possessions to 12 in the first quarter. Overall, was only 75 to 72. So we managed to pull it back after that first quarter. And even in the final quarter, it was only one difference there. So... Again, is that that first quarter? I think most people have highlighted that first quarter as being the key to the match, and it made it very difficult for us to to get back into it. And another thing we've highlighted in the past is trying to keep St Kilda's halfbacks away from dangerous positions. We did it really well in the game in 2022 when Sinclair, for example, was having most of his possessions in the back pocket. Whereas if you look at his heat map and where his possessions were in this game, they were up on the wing. And so he could get into dangerous positions to deliver the ball inside 50. Yeah, I think this was, I guess, kind of summed up our game, didn't it? When we did this well, we were able to to get some good ball movement. We were able to get deep entries and we were able to score. And then when we did it bad or poorly, we, we really made it, you know, difficult for ourselves. And and I think that was kind of the summary of the game, wasn't it? it, it you know, there were some really good bits and there were some really uh, not so good bits, I guess. Uh, Stringer looked like he was playing that deep anchor role, didn't he? So, you know, he was he was often our deepest forward. He was too static too often, though. Uh, and I think that invited pressure and outnumbers. So he was our really our only deep, um, our only deep forward and, and he wasn't really moving for the ball. I thought he held his position well, and, and that was important to make the ground big. But because there wasn't a lot of movement there, um, it, it did make it difficult. But when he did, and, you know, there were a couple of examples. Think that Langford goal in the last quarter where he did come up with the ball. There was the deepest forward, came up with the ball, and the ball ended up over the back, and, and Langford was able to track back and, and kick that goal. So there were, again, some examples where it worked well. And then I think the other thing was too often our half forwards got caught in no man's land. We've been pretty good at this year at, at not doing that and you know our either our half forwards or our up or our half backs but i think they just got outworked uh both ways it, it cre- allowed that 
outnumber in our forward line made it easier for St Kilda to intercept. And then it was a problem for us on on the way out, you know, when St Kilda were coming back out because it made it easy for them to overlap. But, I mean, when you look at the guys that we had playing through our half forward line, we had Caldwell, 37 games, Nick Martin, 24 games, Menzi, five games, Davey, three games. So, you know, it, it, it's going to happen. We're going to have these ebbs and flows in games. So I think we just need to accept that we've still got a lot of work to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, all in all, it, it, there was some good in the game and, and there was some stuff that we need to improve. And, and that's going to be, I think, the tale of 2023 really for us. Yeah, absolutely. And then the final point was to win the Draper-Marshall matchup. Obviously, Marshall had a big impact in the practice game. And so it was, it was a key for us to target there. And again, lining up with that first quarter, Marshall was a big reason for St Kilda's early dominance. He had seven disposals and four marks in that first quarter compared to Draper's two disposals and no more marks. Now, the influence was fairly similar for the remainder of the game. And I think Draper probably uh, did his best work as the Ruckman as opposed to around the ground. But I think the absence of Phillips, a, a genuine second ruckman, really hurt the structure of the side and really hurt Draper's influence because it meant that Draper wasn't able to get forward. So he attended 78% of centre bounces against the Saints compared to 62% across the first two weeks, which means he wasn't able to get into that dangerous position forward that he that he did quite well against Hawthorne and Gold Coast. And I think that at the moment is where he can most influence games. He's not a Max Gorn. He's not a Brody Grundy what we saw from Marshall on the, on the weekend, he's not going to be super effective around the ground, but getting him forward can make him dangerous and, and make defences worried. So it's something to consider when you're looking at the structure of the side going forward. Yeah, it was a bit of a typical Sammy Draper game, wasn't it? Uh, when he was playing with energy and competing hard, we were playing good footy. Most of that probably happened in the you know the first half of the last quarter but when he wasn't doing that Marshall got on top and really helped them both defensively and offensively uh, I think too often uh Draper Sammy didn't get across to contest when the ball was coming out of our forward line and, and that made it easier for the Saints to, to get territory and look I think finding that consistency in games and and also from game to game is really the next step in his development it, it will come it's just going to take another you know 15, 20, 30 games for him. Uh, you know, Ruckman is typically, you know, get to 27, 28 uh, before they play their best footy. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just going to take a little bit more time with him, I'm afraid. I think we definitely we definitely see signs of improvement. He's adding more, more strings to his bow. And over the last, say, second half of last year and the beginning of this year, he's definitely added a lot more forward craft. And again, that's just, just his development, as you said. I think if we think about the other things that probably went wrong, uh, particularly in that first quarter, you, you did a really good job of highlighting this in your Twitter review of the game, that Essendon midfielders were really clustering around the ball uh, and that allowed St Kilda space when they got the ball out of a clearance and, and they were away. They seemed to rectify that a bit as the game went on, but again, it had that big impact in the first quarter. Also, you had that open St Kilda forward line, and as we've already identified, most of St Kilda's scores came from intercept, meaning that the the entries came when Essendon weren't necessarily set up for it. And that's why you had players like Higgins and uh, Butler and Gresham get into space and, and get those easy marks because they were able to get those entries when we didn't have the, the setup that we would have had from a stoppage. And again, that's something that the team needs to work on going forward. You also highlighted, obviously, the uncharacteristic mistakes. I, I think it's been said pretty consistently across the fandom that that was probably Redmond's worst game in the last two years. And, you know, it's even just maybe there was something else going on because he was making really 
bad mistakes and poor errors that, that cost goals. And even then, we matched them for two and a half quarters and would arguably the better side. But as so often happens, you, you spend all your petrol tickets getting to parity and then the other side is able to run over the top right at the end there. Yeah, that's right. And look, against the, the Suns, we were able to win the a lot more of the big moments, weren't we? And, and again, the Saints, we weren't. And, and a lot of those big moments came in the first quarter. You know, even you know, Langford drops that mark at half back. He's got a good set of hands. We don't normally see that kind of mistake from them. I, I think that was the one that where he then got pinned for incorrect disposal and um, and then Redmond gave away the 50-metre penalty, didn't it? Like, it wasn't kids making mistakes that kids make in games. You know, it wasn't Massimo you know, fumbling under pressure or or turning the ball over. It was two pretty experienced players just having brain fades at a at an important time that cost us a goal. And there were a few examples of that, particularly in, in that first quarter. Um, but I think ultimately the way that we're trying to play stood up against a team that's in really good form. We just weren't, yeah, we just weren't clean enough for, for long enough or, or at least early in the game. I, I'm not a. I don't know. We agree on this because we spoke about it early in the week. I'm not a big subscriber on the theory that it's a game that we would have laid down and got belted by last year because we we showed against Hawthorne, we showed against the Swans where we got jumped and, and came back in both of those games and won, and even against Collingwood um, late in the season. You know they they got a really big head start and, and we came back. I think the difference in those games was though we were just a little bit slow off the mark. And then once we got into the game, we got going in this game, we looked terrible. Like we were just making some really, really bad mistakes. And probably the thing that that has improved is I think our confidence might've got down in a game like that last year. Whereas, whereas this year we were able to correct that in, in game and, and ultimately we weren't still able to win. And, you know, there's no honorable losses here. We lost the game that, Really, we should have won, and and I think we should be, and I expect that Brad Scott and his coaching staff will be disappointed in that. But if there is a pleasing takeaway, it's that our game plan stood up because we didn't lose because our game plan and our structures went right. We lost because we made silly mistakes and turned the ball over in in dangerous parts of the ground, and and we didn't lose because you know we threw in the towel or, or anything like that. We were able to just sort of get back to to our structures, get back to the way that we want to play. And that enabled us to work our way back into the game. And, and ultimately, as you said, we spent all of our petrol tickets, uh, you know, drawing level and then, you know, kind of run out of fuel. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we should take some some good things out of it. And, and it clearly identified some parts of our game that we need to continue to work on. Absolutely. And just before we move off the Saints game, I just want to give a shout out to Jake Kelly. There was a lot of talk uh, from the training watchers about how much the development coaches are working on him moving the ball quickly and, and being more effective with ball in hand as opposed to just being a really effective stopper. It seemed like that has paid off a bit. He definitely, at least in the eye test, he does seem to be moving the ball on quicker, look, finding that first option as much as possible. I think, as he sort of said earlier, when given we had to restructure the, the back line there, he sort of was the beneficiary of that from a disposal point of view. So 29 disposals, 11 marks, 16 intercept possessions. And something else that you pointed out was that he has the highest amount of contests in the league, defensive contests in the league at the moment, without having lost a one-on-one, which is a really impressive stat to consider. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I was... 
I guess not so much critical of him as a player last year, but more just the way that we were using him. And, and I was really confused about it. But, you know, that was in the past, different coaching group. I've been really impressed, not just of his defensive work, because I think we've all acknowledged that he's had that and, and he's a good defender, a really good defender, um, especially what I want. Uh, I think what he has improved is his, his work rate when we've got the ball and, he, and he's really contributing a lot when we're, we're moving the ball offensively. He's running really hard to to be a link up option, and he's moving the ball quickly and efficiently. So, uh, yeah, real credit to how he's um, he's developed and improved his game. Yeah, well, look forward to seeing how that goes for the rest of the season. All right, well, look, let's look at what caught our eye in the news. There was one big one that seemed to generate a lot of reaction uh, on Twitter. And that was during the SEN Sports Day segment with Daniel Hoyne from Champion Data. He brought up uh, in response to an audience question that Essendon was still the easiest side to move the ball against. Now, he didn't provide any data to support that. It was it was simply a, almost a throwaway line there. But you've gone into our tracking data to see if you can work out where he's getting that impression from. Yeah, I, I think that we're all learning to accept and expect that media outlets are, are well aware that sensationalising a headline or, or a grab about Essendon is going to create lots of activity on social media. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's just, you know, sky's blue, uh, grass is green. Uh, media like to to create some headlines around the Don. So, yeah, I think let's let's just put that aside. But from from my perspective and and from your perspective, uh, you know, we we just want people to love Essendon as much as we do, and that's why we do this. And um, uh, and I think cherry picking metrics without context and and without examples, I, I, I know from some people detract uh, from you know their experience and and their love of Essendon and. Uh, and they want to go to the footy because they they see it, they roll their eyes at it, and they think, oh, here we go again. Essendon's not getting any better. So, uh, yeah, we uh, we think we can add some better context and, and some analysis to it. So the stat that that he used to his credit, I, I asked him on Twitter, and he came back was the percentage of inside fifties. So the the percentage, uh, so the number of times we go inside our own forward fifty that are then rebounded and go coast to coast into the opposition 50. Uh, so so that was the the stat that he used. And and he's right. There's been no improvement in that statistic. Essendon ranked 17th in the AFL this season for allowing the opposition to take the ball from our forward line into their own. So 33% of the time we go inside our own forward 50, the ball gets rebounded out and the opposition ends up inside their own 50. But for context on that statistic alone, and you haven't seen the full data, mate, who do you think are the top three or, you know, two or three teams uh, in terms of restricting the number of times teams go from their forward 50 into into their defensive 50? Look, I guess from how they've been playing uh, Collingwood, uh, Melbourne, and then I think probably St Kilda are probably the best at that at the moment. Yeah, and then on the flip side, we know Essendon's seventeenth because I've just mentioned that, and um, and and Daniel Hoyne sort of he didn't t- give us the ranking, but he told us how poor we were doing at it. But who do you think the other teams in the sort of bottom four or bottom five might be? Well, I mean, if you just think about based on who's conceded the most points, uh, so Port's conceded the most points, so I'd, I'd guess them, uh, Hawthorne, West Coast, Sandown, and maybe even Geelong. They really seem to have lost a lot of their structure this year so far. Yeah, so you're right. Collingwood and Mel. Well, you're, you're partly right. Collingwood and Melbourne are second and fourth in in the AFL for 
for restricting the number of the times teams basically go coast to coast. The Swans are third. But Port Adelaide, the team that you just mentioned has conceded the most points in the AFL this season, they're number one. So the stat that all of a sudden is, you know, if you take it in isolation, Essendon are bad at restricting ball movement, kind of doesn't really mean a lot on its own. And then at the other end, Hawthorne are last, which you kind of expect that, you know, they, they beat North on the weekend, but they've obviously had two, you know, pretty big losses. Richmond and Geelong are the other two with us in the bottom four. So, uh, you know, Richmond has sort of been up and down and Geelong, you know, you mentioned them and, and they haven't won a game. So you sort of expect they're having some troubles. But St Kilda, the the team who, you know, you mentioned that they might be right up the top of this. They're, they're the epitome of pressure. Everyone talks about Ross Lyons' defensive game plan and how well they're doing. They're ranked 14th. They're, they're 31% and, and not going much better at, at Essendon at 33%. So, the best performing team in this metric is the team that's conceded the most number of points in the league and the team that is is widely regarded as the the best pressure team in the competition three weeks in and have conceded the least number of points for the season. They're 14th and, and only doing marginally better than us. And I guess, you know, that statistic moving the ball from 150 to the other, it doesn't actually speak about the outcome of when the ball actually gets there. So what happens when the Opposition is getting the ball from our forward fifty to their forward fifty. Yeah, it's a good question, and and that's right. And and this is where we're seeing some real level of improvement to date. We're conceding ninety four point eight points a game last season. Three weeks in, that's down to seventy nine. Now, granted, the opposition we've played against hasn't hasn't been great, um, and coast to coast scores. So it's it's not just the coast-to-coast ball movement, but actually conceding scores from coast-to-coast. It was our biggest score against last year. We've been in the bottom two in the competition for the last three or four seasons. We've reduced that down to 16 points a game against us uh, this year. 2.3 points a game from stoppages in our forward 50. So ball up, throw it happens in our forward line. Opposition wins it, takes it down the other end and scores, you know, on average 2.3 points a game. From turnovers, so we turn the ball over in our, you know, going inside 50 or in our forward line, we're conceding eight points a game. So that that's that one. That's that real one, coast to coast. Still got a little bit of work to do around kick-ins. We're conceding, you know, 6.3 uh, points a game. So I, I think that's probably the one part where if we were setting up a little bit better, you would hope that we could bring down. But all in all, we're, we're making some improvement there. And and here's what I think is happening, mate. I, I do think we, we're... A, a harder team to move the ball against. I think just picking that one stat in isolation doesn't tell you all that much. It looks to me that our coaches are are concentrating on two parts of the ground. We were 15th for inside 50 tackles last year. We're up to ninth this season, and that's actually equal with St Kilda. Uh, So I think there's a lot of effort, a lot of focus on trying to keep the ball inside our forward 50 and putting a lot of pressure on there and and restricting the movement out of our forward line. Scores from forward 50 turnovers is our second highest score source. Like we we very, very rarely were able to score from, you know, repeat entries or from forward 50 turnovers. And we can see that when we watch it. We, We just know from watching there's a lot more pressure inside our forward 50. We're seeing that as a result in our scores and, and the data is kind of backing that up. But then what I think is happening is it, 
if the ball gets through that forward 50, we've got an improved structure behind the ball. And I think we're getting better at rolling back. I do think there's more pressure through the ground. You can see our, our mids have increased their tackle numbers, their pressure act numbers, and, and that's definitely happening. But that setup behind the ball is allowing us, as I mentioned, to roll back and then to intercept in our defensive 50. We're actually the fourth highest team in the AFL so far this season in scoring from defensive 50 turnovers. And it's our number one scoring source. The Pies, you know, they've been highlighted and praised for their ball movement. And, and you know, we see lots of clips of, you know, how Dacos gets involved, or both Dacos brothers really get involved and how they move it from one end to the other so cleanly. And rightly so. They're actually ranked third in the AFL for transitioning from their back 50 to their forward 50 as a percentage of inside 50s that can see. So we're looking at the reverse of the statistic that, um, that Daniel mentioned on on SEN. So 34% of the time, Collingwood's opponent goes inside 50, Collingwood intercepts and then takes the ball the length of the ground and goes into their own forward 50. We're above them. We're second in the competition at 35%. So we're actually performing better than the team that's highlighted as, you know, the, the sort of the, the gold star in this part of the game. Um, you know, granted, there's a who's played who sort of um, thing to look at, but... And, and St Kilda are number one, I should add. But interestingly enough, Gold Coast are fourth and Hawthorne are tenth in in moving the ball from their own defensive 50 into their forward 50. So we've kind of been cherry-picked and identified as this team that's still allowing the opposition to move the ball from one end to the to, to the other end too often. But we've actually played three teams that are pretty good, or at least two of them. St Kilda are the best at it uh, this year and Gold Coast are fourth. So... Uh, you know, we have been tested against some teams that do actually move the ball really well. And and Hawthorne, for all their troubles, is still 10th. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of middle of the road, really. So, you know, our, our 17th place ranking at defending is also balanced against the fact that we've played some teams that are good at doing it, but also I think how we're set up to play. And that's stop the ball in our own forward 50, if not roll back, protect ourselves at the other end, and, you know, I think we can see it in how we play. I think the, the data supports it. I think we're getting better at putting pressure on in the front half. And that's coming from young players who are still learning the game. And then we're set up better behind the ball than we have previously. And I think both of those factors are helping us score more. And that's without, you know, Peter Wright. So, yeah, I, I think we can not be dismissive of that statistic because there's still some work to do. I'm sure our coaches wouldn't like us being 17th for conceding ball movement from one end to the other but at least we're much, much better at preventing scores and intercepting and moving the ball the other way than we have in the past. And and you can only fix so much, right, at, at any one point in time. So, yeah, focus on the front end, focus on the back end. That bit in between, I'm sure, will improve and work itself out as the season rolls on. Well, as, as far as context goes, that was outstanding, mate. Well done. Uh, you put a lot of work into that. And hopefully people have understood that. Uh, it It's a lot of defensive fifties and forward fifties and flipping. So hopefully it's, it's all come across really clear there. Yeah. Thank you, mate. I hope so. If, if anyone's got any further questions or they're not sure on something I've said there again, I said it last week, I do use a lot of vernacular. So apologies if I have there, but hopefully it makes sense. And, and if you do have questions, hit me up. Yeah. Well, look, let's start talking about the giants. And as some of you would have noticed, we've started naming the episodes after certain players and, 
I'm going to break the rule that I set for naming these episodes. It's only taken three weeks, but I'm already going to break it. They're only meant to be for more obscure players who'd played for both clubs. Uh, but there was a pun that I identified early in the week that I think was far too good to ignore. So apologies to Sean Edwards and Kurt Aylett, but today's episode is going to be titled The Dylan Shield. John, I'd like to apologize for costing us half our listener base with that terrible pun. Yeah, look, I'm sure we're going to get feedback, mate. So let's let's why people are, are probably cringing when. And sorry if you're driving and you've um if you, you've swerved off the freeway, but yeah, look, I'll let it pass for now, mate. That's all right. Well, look, when I asked about memories against the Giants, there's not that many games against the Giants that really stand out from a positive sense. There's been a few close losses, uh, a controversial moment with Callan Ward and a, an umpiring decision. Uh, but I think the one memory that really sticks out to Don's fans was the win at Marvel in round 15 of 2019. It was part of that streak of comeback wins that we had in that year. Uh, in this game, we came back from 19 points down in the final quarter to win by six uh, with Hooker kicking the winning goal. And that was that was really big standout. Obviously, Hooker's had a few of those moments, but uh, given the hard work he did outside 50, uh, you know, 30 seconds before the ball got to him, uh, it was a really impressive performance there. Yeah, they're a team a lot of us haven't seen a lot up close, aren't they? Like, uh, we've only played them in Melbourne the three times and, and the last, you know, the most recent one of those was in 2019. So we're going back a little while. It was 2016 before that, obviously a, a year that that was a bit of a challenge for us for the obvious reason. Uh, and 23, uh, 2013, the, the time before that and, and the first time. So, you know, we haven't seen them in Melbourne a lot up close. And uh, if you haven't got up to to the showgrounds in Sydney to watch them play, it, it's not a ground that comes up very well on the tally. So, um, uh, yeah, I think we can be forgiven for, for not having all that many standout memories against them. Yeah. Well, look, let's go a bit deeper into where the Giants are at at the moment. So in 2022, they finished 16th with six wins and 16 losses and a percentage of 84.6. So uh, just below where we finish. So they had wins against the Suns, Adelaide, West Coast, North Melbourne, Hawthorne and Essendon. And those are all sides that finish in the bottom seven with them. So they beat the sides around them, but they, they didn't challenge the better sides there. Obviously, they had uh, Leon Cameron depart after uh, nine years at the helm. Uh had been fairly successful making uh, grand finals and preliminary finals during that tenure. Uh, they've got a new coach in Adam Kingsley, someone who's been at Port Adelaide, St Kilda and Richmond prior to getting this gig. Um, so he's assistant coach at Port Adelaide during their 2007 grand final and an assistant coach at Richmond uh, during their 2019 and 2020 premiership. So he's got a fairly good pedigree there. And so it's going to be interesting to see how many changes there have been style-wise to their game plan. Uh, this season, they've had a come-behind win against Adelaide in 37-degree heat. Understandably, they they lose the next week, you know, not only coming off that, that heat game, but travelling across the Nullarbor to West Coast. Uh, lost by three goals there. And then a close game against Carlton with some controversial umpiring. Yeah, and, mate, what are we seeing stats-wise compared to last year that might indicate there's some change in, you know, game style and, and how they're trying to play? Yeah, so not going to go as deep as I did last week. I think I confused a few people by going through too many stats. So I've picked out a few that I think really tell us a story about what the Giants are doing. I think the first one to really stands out to me is what you can tell about their game plan from their kick handball ratio. So they had a kick handball ratio of 1.48 kicks per handball in 2022. That's a pretty average level for that stat. Uh, this season so far, they've got 1.23 kicks per handball. So that's the lowest ratio of any side 
in the competition this year. That means they're handballing more compared to the, their kicking than any side. So it really tells you how they're wanting to move the ball there. They're wanting to move it by hand as much as possible. Through that, they're generating the fifth most inside 50s of any side. But when they get it in there, they have the fifth worst efficiency when they go in there. So they're getting into their forward line a lot, but not very effectively. And they're also currently conceding the third most inside 50s per game. And they have the worst opponent inside 50 efficiency. So when they're letting their opponents get the ball into their defensive 50 a lot, and they're letting them get into really good positions to score from. So that's causing them a lot of issues. They're the lowest in the comp for tackles, but they still have a positive tackle differential. So it seems like they're playing very much an outside game. They're trying to get the ball out of that contested situation, move it through handball. Uh, that's That explains why not only do they have a low tackle count, but why their opposition has a low tackle count as well. Uh, with some of their changes, they're particularly in their, their midfield, uh, their center clearances are holding up well. They're, they're plus one in that but stoppage has become an issue. They're, they're down four per game in that. And they're also going at minus six intercepts per game, meaning they're giving up the ball a lot more. They can they can generate possession off their opponents. And that sort of feeds into what I spoke about before with the forward 50 entries of their opponents, because their opponents are getting the ball a lot on turnover. They're able to catch the Giants defense out and get into effective scoring positions. And then we go into the list changes and there's a lot of big name outs. Uh, obviously Hopper and Taranto have gone to Richmond and that, sort of leads into what I was talking about with their clearance game, particularly around stoppage. Uh, DeBoer is, has retired and then they had a couple of trades out. So Bobby Hill, who's been so effective at Collingwood so far and Tanner Brune uh, to Geelong. Uh, their ins are basically all draftees. Uh, Toby Bedford did come from Melbourne, but hasn't played a game yet. Uh, obviously Aaron Cadman, the number one draft pick, which they traded up for, hasn't appeared yet. Uh, but other than that, uh, not a lot from their new players this year. So they're really relying on players who have been there for a while at this point. Yeah, there's some big outs there, isn't there, with Hopper, Taranto, and then you know Bruins, one who, if those two were going to leave, you you thought might have pushed up behind them. But despite that, uh, you know they've still got a very good and strong midfield. So I don't think we should we should take any um, take that lightly or, or or show any level of complacency to think that they've they've lost. Um, some good players and and that this is going to be an easy battle in the midfield. But uh, let's have a quick look at the last time we played the Giants. So that was late in the season last year. I, I think that was the sort of the beginning of the end for for our season, wasn't it? The uh, I think that was the week that the the internal review got handed down and, and probably started to see the the start of of some things to unravel. So it was up at, at the showgrounds in in Western Sydney, and the Giants ran out. 14, 12, 96 winners to our 10, 9, 69. Yeah, so it was a game, it was a two-point difference at halftime and it ended with GWS kicking seven of the last 10 goals. We actually kicked the first two goals after halftime. So from there was seven goals to one post that mark. Uh, and as you sort of hinted at, a lot of the effort had fallen out of the side. Uh, as, as you say, it lined up with the uh, review being published at the club. And that, that really played out in the way GWS moved the ball. They had 144 marks to 81. That's an insanely high mark count. So they really controlled the play. And as you sort of hinted at earlier, one of our weaknesses last year was inside 50 tackles. GWS had 16 tackles inside their 50 to only one for Essendon. So again, r- real demonstration of, of a really poor effort game in that sense. Uh, they had Jesse Hogan 
kicked four goals, and he also took 12 marks, whilst Himmelberg took 11 and coming 10. Uh, Whitfield led the way of 29 disposals. Uh, for Essendon, Guelphy kicked four, uh, whilst Parrish had 29 disposals. But after him, only Sam Durham had 23, had more than 20. So really a lot of poor efforts from a lot of players that game. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? They they really controlled the game that um, that day with kick mark, kick mark, and, you know, controlled on the outside, whereas this season they they seem to be looking to do that much more through handball than they are kicking. You mentioned there they've got the lowest kick-to-handball ratio in the in the competition. So, um, yeah, the, the style of, of ball movement that game, is, at least on what we've seen in the first three rounds by the Giants, is going to be something very different this week. That was also the game where there was a lot of Essendon in the Giants coaches box, wasn't it? Mark McVeigh was their interim coach. Dean Solomon and James Hurd were there alongside him. And, and they went really went to work on, on us and, and went in with a key, uh, you know, a, a clear plan. Perryman tagged Merritt and, and he got plenty of it himself. They, they moved Whitfield to the wing. He'd been playing a lot more um, at halfback and Kelly on, on the other wing and he'd been playing more sort of inside mid. Uh, and they got really dangerous and, and, you know, Whitfield did what Whitfield does against us and had a huge game. Himmelberg went back and played on Stringer and sort of really stood in front of him and, and took his space and, and then he, you know, intercepted and set up a lot of their play. And then they put some real work into Hind and Redmond who were, uh, you know, really last year, they were our real score source where they was either win the ball from the centre clearance, go forward and kick a goal or really run and carry, explode from half back. Uh, and they just dragged them away from dangerous positions. I think we're better better equipped this season with the likes of McGrath back there, Kelly getting more involved in our offence, that if they do that again, I think we're going to be better set up to be able to find other ways than than maybe what we were last year. So, um, but yeah, on to 2023 though, mate, what's selection look like? Yeah, well, again, with the Sunday game, we have the joys of speculating about extended benches. For Essendon, I think there's a fair few ways that they can go based on the selections that they've made this week. And I know it's not popular with a lot of the fan base, with some of the players that were left out, but I think we, we're going to put that to one side and focus on who's been selected today. So uh, coming in is Brandon Zerk Thatcher, and he's been named on the ground. So it's great to have him back, especially with Hogan playing really well for GWS. I think he'll be a, have a key role in this game. And then Phillips and Snelling have been added to the extended bench. No outs at this stage. So the entire extended bench is Snelling, Hind, Heppel, Jones, Davey, Phillips, D'Ambrosio, and Menzi. So it's interesting to note that all the small forwards have been named on the bench. Uh, based on how the team's been structured up, you would expect two of them to play, which if you, you go by who's been playing, you expect that to be Menzi and Davey, unless they're concerned about uh, potential concussion effects for Davey. Did copper knock right at the end of last week's game? And then I would suggest that Snelling comes in in that spot. Um, but that for me, that only leaves two spots in the 22. And I expect they'll be picking one of Hind or D'Ambrosio as the seventh defender and one of Phillips of Jones. What are your thoughts? Yeah, relatively similar. I think we'll touch on, uh, you know, a weakness of, of GWS that, that we've picked up that probably does suggest uh, that Davey and Menzi will play. Um uh, yeah, I'm a bit like you. I think one of Phillips or Jones uh, plays as well and and one of D'Ambrosio or Hind. Um, the other thing is is dependent on on who, you know, who they play through the wings as well and, and you know, uh, will we see more D'Ambrosio play in that role? Um, and I know, look, the, the Voss one's controversial because he's had 
three good games now, a good practice game and, and two, um, you know, VFL game round one and round two. But um, I think it's a challenging one. I think clearly the coaches are content with what they're getting out of Harry Jones and, and the way that he's working up the ground and, and providing an outlet there. I don't really think that's Foss's game. And the difficult thing that we've kind of created now is we brought Stringer in last week, whether we should have or not, and whether he needed another week or two in the VFL is is kind of moot now because he's in the senior side. Uh, you would expect that he's going to be better for the run, isn't he, and, and, and build off that. So he kind of has to play there. Um, and then you've got Langford who kicked five goals two weeks ago and then went forward last week after spending three quarters in the back line and, and had an immediate impact up forward too. So we've kind of got some congestion for those deeper um, goal threats now that, that maybe weren't there a couple of weeks ago. Um, so look, I, I think, I don't think it's a bad thing that Voss has to keep knocking the door down and, and, the benefit of him continuing to play VFL, he's going to continue to build his tank and and um and you know build his work rate and, and those kind of things. And uh it'll happen sooner rather than later if he keeps kicking goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other elephant in the room then is is the role of Dyson Heppel. It's the first time this season he hasn't been named on the ground. That would suggest his spot in the side is under threat. Uh based on the selections and, and what we're about to talk about, I wouldn't be having him in the 22, but I think what we know about Brad Scott is he does like to give players a chance more, one more chance than maybe necessary um, to see if they can find form. So if he does play, then one of those players is out and it may be one of those small forwards. They may, they may think that the way Caldwell played last week, they can get away with it. Yeah, I I think so, mate. Unless there's a thought that he might play at half back and and wing and it's, and it's one. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm really not sure. It's 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 hard to predict, but I think that he clearly looks like his confidence in kicking has has all but gone, and and that's a hard thing to get back playing under the pressure of the AFL. Uh, you know, he he might be rested or managed this week. I'm I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty sure I heard Brad Scott mention that their hope was to get 15 games out of him this year. So that suggests that they then they don't see him as being a. a you, you know, they see him as being in our best 22 and can add value when he's fit and, and informed, but they also expect that he's going to have some ups and downs. So so maybe he'll find himself out. The other thing that's interesting, mate, is there's um, there was a bit of a cloud over Setterfield, but there's no other midfielder picked on the extended bench. So uh, that suggests to me that that he's probably right to go and, and will take his place on Sunday. Yeah, well, he wasn't named in the uh, injury list earlier in the week. I think it sounded like it was just some sort of corky and they were being preco- uh, very precautious there. Looking at GWS, uh, similar to us, they, they don't have any outs at this stage. Their ins are Cadman and Faye. They're both potential debutants. Faye is a second-year player, and obviously this is Cadman's first year. He had a decent game in the VFL last week, and then Adam Kennedy has been named on the extended bench as well. You would think that if Cadman was debuting, they would have named him on the ground. Given he's the number one pick, they'd like to make a big deal of that. You imagine there'd be a lot of media around that, and they'd like to to build some of that into it. Um, otherwise, fairly consistent selection for GWS. I think they've got a fairly uh, solid lineup at the moment, although given what we saw from their VFL side, they don't have much to pick from uh, currently in that in that side there. So, again, we can sort of wait and see really to see how they go about selecting their final side. Yeah, I guess, you know, it is only Thursday, so I wouldn't completely rule them out 
flying Cadman. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll know more at five o'clock tomorrow, won't we? Absolutely. Well, look, speaking of the Giants' last match, it was against Carlton at the showgrounds and JWS 9-10-64, lost to Carlton 9-20-74. Obviously, all the talk this week has been about the umpiring decision against Caniglio, uh, but arguably that that 10-point margin flattered JWS. Carlton had 10 more scoring shots, uh, seven more inside 50s, almost double the hitouts, although they did only win five more clearances from that. The Giants also lost contested possession by 25, although they made up for it with 14 more tackles than than Carlton have. And for a low tackling side like JWS, that was a a big performance for them. And they also turned the ball over 10 more times than than Carlton did. So really comes, I think it really came down to Carlton not making the most of their opportunities. It probably should have been a more comfortable win for the Blues. Uh, For JWS, uh, Riccardi, Hogan and Daniels all kicked two goals. Uh, Green had 34 disposals, uh, Kelly and Ash with 30, and Kiniglio with 29. They were their leading disposal getters. So let's move on then to our match. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's only the fourth time ever playing JWS at Marvel Stadium for Essendon. Uh, our last two home games both were during COVID seasons, and we ended up playing those at Carrara. What are the key things you need to see from Essendon do you think is going to be required to win the game? Yeah, you mentioned earlier that the Giants have conceded the third most inside 50 so far this season and they're they're 18th for the worst in the competition for conceding scores per inside 50. So as you said, opposition teams so far have been able to get the ball inside their you know their forward 50 a lot and then being able to score at, at, a, at a pretty high rate. So more than, than half the time, 52.5% of the time, they're conceding a score. So... I think this is a big game for our forwards, but I think it's a big game for our small forwards in particular. The Giants conceded nine goals against Carlton. Five of them were kicked by Smalls. Owies and Motlock kicked two each. Against West Coast, they conceded 14 goals, and seven of those were from Smalls. uh, Cripps, sorry, kicked three. Hunt kicked two. And then Waterman, who's a sort of a medium forward, he kicked four on top of that. And then against the Crows, they conceded 12 goals and eight of them were, were small, you know, small forwards or small players. Rochelle kicked three and Rakin kicked two. So, yeah, I think it's a really big game for, for Menzi and, and Davey. I know they're on the expended, extended bench at the moment, but I, I really hope they play. If I was in match committee, I'd be making sure they were in the 18, uh, let alone the the 22. So I think it's a big, big game for both of those guys, along with, you know, Stringer and Langford and the like. Sam Taylor is a real quality key defender and inter- interceptor. He he leads them with nine a game. Jack Buckley's had a good start to the year. He hasn't played a lot of footy. He's been been there for a few years now. Um, he's at twenty five. He had Kerno last week. Kerno didn't have his kicking boots on, which you know often happens with him. But um, I think he he's likely, depending what they do with Himmelberg, to to go to Stringer. But he's averaging seven intercepts. So I think it's important that we take those two matchups either deep or long and wide, so that that they're they're isolated from from the rest of what we're doing and that we give our small and medium forwards plenty of space to operate in. So we want to see Davy and Menzi, we want to see Perkins, we want to see Martin, you know, whether he's half forward or wing coming into space and 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 finding pockets of space to operate in. And we absolutely need our half forwards to be a lot more defensively minded in transition. Uh, and, and I think actually keeping them closer to goal, you know, you know, 40 to 60 metres from goal actually helps them with that. So not too dissimilar about what we talked about um, in terms of playing against the Saints. But I, I think that the key here is that we do really isolate those two interceptors in, in Taylor and Buckley. 
uh, either either deep or wide, and then using our small forwards um, to you know to pop into space and, and create goals. So yeah, I think we get, we can give ourselves a really big opportunity with the forward structure that we've seen throughout this season, and the we've been really good at. I know Langford kicked five against the Suns, but we've been really good at finding goals and, and spreading the load against you know multiple goal kickers. So I think you know. The Giants' problem with conceding inside 50s and then conceding scores once they get in there gets in there really talks to our ability to find a plethora of targets forward, uh, particularly our smalls and mediums. Yeah. And what about the midfield battle? What what would you be looking at doing there? Yeah, I think this is a game that's really about the source because of the way that, that the Giants have played this season. There's a temptation to to send a run with to, to put a tag or, or a defensive player on on Whitfield, and you know I sort of might shoot myself a little bit in the foot in, in saying this. I, I, we need to be mindful of him. We need to be mindful of Hayes, uh, who's you know playing some better footy, and um, and they've got some really good players on the outside. But I think our best way to control that is is about the source. So. Um, you know, they, they set up and move the ball by hand a lot, as as you touched on. But I think we just really want to own the clearance and own the contest. Coniglio is their number one clearance player, but then they have a good spread behind him between Tom Green, uh, between Callie and, and Ward. And, and those three, along with Toby Green, are their, their top four score involvement players. So, uh, you know, Toby Green's obviously doing most of his work in, in the forward part of the ground. So, their, their midfielders and their contested ball winners and clearance winners are vital not just to to you know winning at the contest but vital to getting the ball outside and setting up that that um that possession game and that handball game and they're they're vital to them creating scores I think this is a game that we properly introduced Caldwell as a fifth midfielder in our rotations the Giants have been operating with a four-man rotation a lot similar to what we have but they've had a heavily heavier reliance on their top three. Uh, so, you know, Kelly popped out for a game and um, and young Harry Rouston popped in there um, and replaced him. And then last week, uh, Kelly came back. So Ward sat out and didn't attend a centre bounce. But you'd have to think this is the week where Ward comes back into that mix, Rouston holds his spot, and they run with five midfielders themselves. So I think that fifth mid is really vital this week to strengthen us at the contest, especially given that fifth middle be a player, uh, you know, like Caldwell, who is really strong at the contest himself. It provides us with another defensively minded midfield to limit, you know, Coniglio and Kelly in particular and their influence. Influence, And it also gives us the the, the manpower at the coalface to, to really outwork the Giants. And I think this might even be an important one where we, we might need to see Stringer or... Uh, or Perkins or Martin just pop in for a centre clearance or two, or centre bounce or two throughout the game just to give us something a little bit different to to work with. So, yeah, I think for me it's uh, not so much about sending a tag at a Whitfield because I, the, the analogy I used talking to you earlier in the week was in doing that you're trying to stop the damn wall when it's already broken. If the ball's already getting out to Whitfield, he's going to hurt you anyway. I think we just need to prevent the ball getting to him and, and really go to work on 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 the clearance and at the contest and get more numbers through there to to help us to make sure that we're more defensively minded and that we've got, you know, more running power and and can outrun them for longer. Yeah, and just going back onto that center bounce stats that you were talking about there and, and the attendances. It's something that a lot of people have really started to notice. We saw on Twitter, a lot of people were really starting to refer to that. 
uh, tempted to to say that we've been a bit of a trendsetter in that space, um, but it's you know it, it really adds to the depth of discussion that we see amongst Essendon fans, and you know talking about the options there and what possibly could happen. So yeah, yeah moving I, I forward. From- it, sorry, man, I was just going to add. I, I don't think it's been a bad thing this year. I, I think we've seen a better spread between our four, haven't we? Last year it was all on Paris Shiel and. Um, Parish Shield and Merritt, and and it was the same thing over and over again, and and we did eventually add Caldwell as that fourth, but um, yeah, this year at least the spread between the four, the addition of Setterfield, who's got some size and and is defensively minded, I think has given us a much better spread, and and maybe the plan has just been to to get those four to gel and and to work really well together, and then add the fifth in in Caldwell. You know, he's been coming into the centre in in last quarters and. And obviously he had that interrupted preseason. So there's probably an element of trying to build him up that I most definitely think that this is the week to do it. And, and we expand from four to five. And, and I think it's going to be pretty important in, in allowing us to uh, get the ascendancy in the middle of the ground and at the contest. Okay. Well, look, let's move on to our final segment, which is the final thought. And I want you, this is a agree or disagree with this statement, uh, giving the upcoming draw, which a lot of people have highlighted, this is Essendon's best chance of a win in the next seven weeks. Do you agree or disagree with that? No, disagree, mate. I think we're capable of of playing better teams. I think we're closing the gap, albeit three weeks in between our our best and worst and playing some footy that's going to stand up against better teams. You know, St Kilda have been playing good footy and we got awfully close to them and and probably, you know, as I mentioned earlier, lost the game, you know, because of our own poor play rather than anything they did. So... I yeah I think we're gonna you know we all we typically match up well against Melbourne the last few years had some close losses I think we've um, you know we've ran Collingwood twice last year and um, and and got awfully close so yeah I, I it's probably the lowest ranked team we, we play over this coming stretch um, although Geelong are on the bottom of the ladder but I think we're we're very much capable of beating some good sides mate yeah I tend to agree there well look we'll have to see how things play out on Sunday then. Uh, before we go, I just want to announce that I'll be recording the next Don the Stat bonus episode next week. That will come out on the Patreon immediately and then a week later on the main feed. Uh, I've lined up a bona fide Essendon superfan, uh, so it's going to be fun talking to them about their Don's story. Uh, if you'd like to hear that straight away, you'll be able to find a link to our Patreon feed in the description of this episode for when that comes out. Any final words from you, Jono? Uh, no, just want to wish everyone a, a happy and safe Easter break. Uh, look forward to getting to the footy on Sunday and, and cheering us on and seeing how we go. Absolutely. Go Dons. The ball trickles to the outer side. Canelo's had more of it than anyone else out there tonight. Merritt, brilliant. Parrish, career best form. Hooker, a chance to give it off to Tepper Moody. Chose not. Langford. Big battle. McGrath waits. McGrath gets a little give. McKenna, 55. The luck of the Irish. It falls to Hooker. It's not going to be the last kick of the night, but it's going to be almost the last kick of the night. The Bombers in front. Can someone take a mark? Ball bobbling around, still not there. McGrath, still a bobble, still a bobble. Kelly Gill, is that Kelly Hook? Yes. It's about to bounce, and Essendon have won. A famous one. A big one.